From Boise, Idaho, and Idaho Education News, this is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. Well, you know, every legislative session kind of takes on its own personality, and the personality in the House today is kind of like that, that person who spends a lot of time reading comments and, and posting comments. It, it's nasty. I mean, it is, it's getting pretty acrimonious. They're going to be working all day Friday, short tempers, uh, but some action too uh, today and a very busy week at the state house. Yeah, it's been a weird week. It's been different. It's felt different. A lot of animosity on display. We're taking a quick break Friday as we record this. House has been embroiled in deep debates and disagreements. Um, They're working late. I mean, they, they had pizza ordered in. Uh, threatening a potential Saturday session. We don't even really know where things stand. But and the, that in-house protocol is kind of like the nuclear option. Yeah. I mean, when leadership starts talking about, you know, bringing people back on Saturday, you know that... Uh, We're all in trouble. N- nerves are frayed and tempers are short, but a but, lot to get to this week. Yeah. So. They're basically... The reason that it's all backed up is they have this transmittal deadline Monday that they want to follow, and we already know that that transmittal deadline won't apply to every single bill because the budget bills, many of them have not been written yet. So the House is very much a prisoner in, in a prison of its own creation. It's, it's their own fault uh, that they're stuck in this situation. But let's talk about what they did this week. Uh, one of the biggest bills of the year, Governor Brad Little's $223 million now at this point, $223 million five-year plan to raise salaries uh, for veteran teachers in particular, but all up and down the career ladder, that passed out of the House Education Committee on Wednesday with unanimous support, clearing its first big legislative hurdle. And House that's always a big hurdle. And maybe the biggest hurdle of yeah. them all. I mean, I think, you know, we kind of were wondering what would happen with House Education. Uh, a conservative committee, an unpredictable committee. I think the fact that it passed out of committee unanimously is telling. I think it sends a signal. Uh, I think it probably surprised some folks who were watching this issue closely. It it gives you a sense of what may happen when this bill comes before the full House, which we expect could happen maybe sometime early next week, uh, and what may happen in the Senate. But uh, after two days of tough questioning, in the end, House education went along with uh, Governor Little's big-ticket item in terms of education. They, they sure did. And we don't see a lot of unanimous votes in support of anything uh, in House education. And so that was uh, interesting and, and noteworthy. But Representative Bill Gosling, uh, Republican from Moscow, led the push uh, to pass the bill. But everyone supported it. We talked about it. That bill made its state house debut um, just recently. But what mm-hmm. it would do is Five years, incremental investment to increase teacher salaries each year over those five years, starting with about $32 million uh, this next year. It would create a new pay rung on the existing career ladder uh, salary allocation model. They're calling it the advanced professional rung. There's a new endorsement. But basically, it's going to create a path for veteran experienced educators who meet a new set of performance criteria. It's going to create a path for them to earn up to $63,000 a right. year. From the state. From the state. state. Yeah. Uh, state currently tops out its salaries at $50,000 right now. And as we know, you know, uh, salaries and benefits will continue to be negotiated at the local level. But this represents an increase in what the state would pay out to local school districts. Which and might make it easier for some districts to uh, increase pay. They may have to pick up less of the slack, may have to ask for less from voters in the form of supplemental levies. Oh, those were definitely some of the uh, the selling points, that it could help some districts compete, that it would maybe alleviate the 
reliance on supplemental levies to pay for things like teacher salaries. To But it, it all comes back to making it more competitive. Uh, I think that there's a sense that over the last five years uh, that the legislature enacted the original career ladder. That was the five-year, $250 million plan designed to make teaching salaries sort of more competitive, but designed to attract people to the retention and help mm -hmm. out addressing particularly the beginning salaries. And now this represents a shift to focus more on the veteran educator salaries. And one of the things that was pointed out during debate over this bill, uh, we talked about how state salary allocations top out at $50,000 right now. There's almost 5,000 teachers across the state of Idaho who are topped out at $50,000 on that top sell of the career ladder. And it's everything, Kevin, as you know, from educators in their eighth or ninth year to educators who have been teaching 20, right. 25 years and are topped out with no real path, um, at least for state allocations, to increase their salary. And that's, and that's been the argument all along, that it's such a compressed schedule that yeah. uh, once uh, teachers get to that $50,000 mark, there's no path to move upward, especially if you're in a school district that does not have the money to go beyond $50,000 uh, in salary. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. The bill does several things. It's a long bill. We've covered it at IdahoEdNews.org on Wednesday uh, when it passed out of committee and then when it was introduced just a few days earlier. Uh, we, uh, we, we covered that as well, but it would create a new accountability system. It would create new salary guarantees, and that was a concern that some legislators had. They felt like they invested this money in state appropriations, and they weren't sure that the money was going to the teachers they wanted it to. This might address that a little bit because it creates two new salary guarantees that would be in effect, one in 2022, I believe, one in 2025 at full build-out, but it basically said if you're on the professional rung of the career ladder, by a certain point, you're going to be guaranteed that your take-home pay will be at least the minimum sell on the professional rung. And then at full build-out, the minimum pay guarantee, if you're on the advanced professional rung, will be there too. And so a little bit more salary guarantees, a little bit more teeth. Uh, they're taking steps to ensure teacher evaluations are accountable, or they could lose state funding for leadership premiums. But one of the biggest education bills of the year in right. terms of dollar amount and impact and stature um, and certainly interest. And it just cleared what could be its largest legislative hurdle. Right. And, and to just kind of recap where we see this going, when we see it going, as I look at the, uh, the House's calendar, uh, I don't see it on even the second reading calendar at this point. So it, it could come up really as it, but it could still come up sometime next week. Perhaps early. Perhaps yeah. Monday. Um, per, and there's things they can do. If there's a Saturday session this week, perhaps it could come up there. But I would think they would want to get that moving on Monday because there's a big budget hearing uh, just maybe the next day even, and they're going to want to know uh, if this bill is in good shape. Um, well, I stand corrected. It is way down on the calendar. It is way far down in the third reading. Calendar. Okay, so it could so come it up could at any time. Really at yeah. any point. So we will be there when it happens, and we'll have full coverage. But again, big hurdle cleared on Wednesday. And, and you know that wasn't the only big issue that came up in education on Wednesday. Later that day on the House floor, a bill we've been watching closely regarding transgender athletics uh, passed the House. Uh, this is a bill that we've been uh, writing about a lot. Yeah, it, it passed largely, although not exclusively along party lines, largely along party lines. That was the bill that was... Uh, pushed by Representative Barbara Ehart, Republican 
from Idaho Falls. I think we both have caught a little bit of testimony on this bill, either on the floor or in the House State Affairs Committee. But what it would do, just a quick reminder, would ban transgender girls and transgender women from participating in girls' and women's sports. And a couple of emotional days uh, of testimony last week, and then the floor vote on Wednesday passed comfortably, generally along party lines, but it passed after a legal opinion from the Attorney General's office became public saying, basically outlining nine pages of constitutionally problematic concerns that the uh, Chief Deputy Attorney General raised with this bill. Everything from discrimination and creating different classes and different rules uh, to the the sex and gender identification tests that received a lot of discussion in, in committee. But the uh, AG's opinion, I've seen AG's opinions that are short and sweet. This one was nine pages outlining many any, potential right, legal Any number pitfalls. of things that uh, the Attorney General's office says could trip up this bill in terms of its constitutionality. And, you know, you, you mentioned a, a bunch of them. The big one, perhaps, uh, at least the first one out of the gate, and I, I blogged about this Attorney yeah. General's opinion. We have a link to the Attorney General's opinion. Uh, if you read the whole blog, thing. You can read it from start to finish. Uh, one of the big concerns is that by doing this, you are treating transgender girls and women differently than, than other people, and yeah. that's a violation of the 14th Amendment. But a lot of concerns about kind of the implementation of this, the appeals process, uh, questions about you know the examination process and whether that yeah. would be... Uh, administered unfairly uh, or you know, disproportionately to a small segment of the population, i.e. transgender girls and women. Because one of, the things, lots of concerns. one of the things that came out is it appears, and it's not specified in the bill, bill, so it appears that anyone could challenge any girl's gender or sex. It could be an opposing athlete. It could be another parent. It could be another coach. It could be a teammate. It, uh, yeah. You know, it could be anybody. And it doesn't, it doesn't specify the procedures for challenging their, their participation based on sex and gender. And so seemingly anyone, for any number of reasons, could challenge a female's gender and sex, setting up what has been described as an invasive, potentially humiliating gender identification tests that could involve blood draws and genital inspections and physician's notes. Um, and that was that was a big talking point yeah. in the debate on the floor on Wednesday, the question of what would entail a, a review, of yeah. an examination of, a, uh, of an athlete's uh, gender. And I read the bill, and the bill is very clear. It says that a physician shall determine gender through a three-step process, which includes an examination. Yeah. There, there is not any verification in, in the wording of that bill. And, you know, Barbara Ehart on the House floor made it sound like the pelvic examination uh, is an optional matter, that it isn't something that a physician would have to do. I, you know, I kind of read the bill, and opponents read the bill similarly, that I don't think there's a whole lot of wiggle room in the language. When you start seeing shall, and you see a list of things, one, two, three, that must be done, uh, that doesn't sound optional. That doesn't read optional. That was a big point of debate. Another, another thing that jumped out at me in the debate, and I was on the House floor for this Wednesday, uh, a lot of discussion. It, it really comes down to a, a values debate about access and a values debate about opportunity. Uh, Ehart again talking about her her life story as a as a college athlete right. and a college coach. Uh, Representative Muffy Davis, a Democrat from Ketchum, who is a multiple uh, Paralympic. Uh, Medal, medalist Correct. in 
alpine skiing and in cycling, uh, talked about, you know, what does this do in terms of access to sports for transgender girls and women who, who are looking for a place to belong, who are looking for a place to, uh, to participate, uh, you know, as she described it, a marginalized community. And talked very, very forcefully on the other side of the debate about denying access and opportunity to, to uh, transgender girls and women. So a lot of debate, we tried to capture the debate in the story on Wednesday. We tried to capture the legal uh, ramifications in, in the blog on Tuesday. And this, this story is not going away. As we both uh, saw on Friday, there were protesters at the rotunda. A couple of hundred young people. Yeah, and mostly um. students, mostly students uh, protesting not just this bill, but uh, several bills uh, regarding transgender rights. Uh, loud protest. Uh, they were screaming shame, shame when they saw legislators leave uh, the House floor. They held signs. I, I went up and, and observed for a while and saw them talking with Senator Sheree Buckner-Webb. Senator Buckner-Webb then introduced me to some of the protesters, and I talked to them a little bit about you know, why they came out and why they wanted to share their story. At that point, uh, it was only about 30 students, but when you were up there, there was more than 150, maybe 200 the, young people. The rotunda people was filled. pretty much packed with uh, protesters, and like I say, most of most of them were students, uh, you know, coming to to voice their concerns. Um, you know, this has become a very emotional issue, and you know, I think that uh, that protest embodies that. Uh, we're hearing that there are going to be more. Uh, more protests on this issue, uh, perhaps early next week. So we'll have uh, we'll keep you posted on that as well. We'll also keep you posted on what happens with this bill in the Senate because we really haven't heard a whole lot about what might become of this bill when it heads over to to the Senate. Yeah, that's where the bill's at right now. Uh, just past the House floor, as we said, waiting to see uh, its next stop on its journey. If it continues, would be to go to the Senate. Uh, so we'll see whether it's taken up by the Senate State Affairs Committee uh, or where it might go or what might happen. Whether the Senate uh, even really looks at this. Uh, we don't know yet, um, but we do know that this is getting national attention, and we do know, you know, we were there for the, the testimony about how this is affecting people and, and, and families. Um, I spoke with some of the protesters today, but we know that this is getting national attention and that people are watching this, and so we're doing our best to, to cover it closely. We're not going to be covering all of the transgender uh, bills, but the ones that do relate uh, to schools and student athletics, uh, we're going to continue to, to follow it. And so the homepage, www.idahoednews.org, is uh, the, way to, uh, the, the way to follow that and, and to, to look for our coverage. I think Tuesday evening uh, there's going to be a guest appearance from a Nike-sponsored transgender athlete and another yeah, uh, demonstration Mosier, or uh, rally. Yep. Uh, triathlete, if I recall. Going to be traveling to Boise. He's been outspoken on, about this bill already on Twitter. And it's interesting because Representative Ehart has brought Nike into the debate. She wore prominently a Nike pen when she debated her bill, and she read the script from a Nike ad. And so she's brought Nike into this. And Chris Mosier, like you said, is a Nike-sponsored transgender athlete who opposes the bill. Right. And so um, this story is not going away, and we'll continue uh, to cover it for sure. Another development on Friday, you know, there was a lot of, uh, we kind of alluded to it already, a, a lot of um, procedural uh, infighting on the House floor uh, Friday morning. Yeah. Kind of slowed things down to a crawl for the first part of uh, Friday morning's session on the, uh, the House floor. But a bill we've been watching very closely did come up for a vote. This is uh, a bill regarding school elections, a, a bill that would 
ban March and August school levy and bond issue elections passed here too fairly comfortably on the House floor. Uh, you were watching the, the proceedings on that this afternoon. Yeah, that's afternoon. House Bill 393, I want to say, if you're scoring at home. Yes. Uh, and that's Representative Wendy Horman's bill. And what that would do is that would take our existing four election days that we use for school bonds and levies. And just off the top of my head, those are March, May, August, and November. Yep. And it would, re it would get rid of two of those four dates. It would get rid of the March and August election dates, meaning that school bonds and levies would only be available to be run during the May and November, right. uh, November election general dates. election, May, May is a primary date on even number of years, the idea being to increase uh, voter turnout. Yeah, Representative Horman said that the whole point of this is to increase turnout, that she feels that turnout is lower, and, and you've tracked turnout, and you've tracked uh, these elections over the last several years, but she's saying that turnout is lower, uh, particularly in August, and that um, uh, she basically said it creates situations where a few hundred people are able to decide the taxing rates for an entire school district. Uh, but there was some pushback to this. The bill did end up passing uh, the House. I had it at 45 to 20. Right. Um, Not by party line. There were few Republicans who voted against it. Yeah, so that passed uh, the House floor 45 to 20. That's a House bill, so that will be going to the Senate next. But the main things to keep in mind uh, are a lot of the education stakeholder groups, particularly the Idaho School Boards Association, I think has had some concerns uh, with this bill. And they talked about Ryan Kirby during his floor debate. It was interesting. He talked about how a lot of school districts can take advantage of the March election uh, to really plan their budget for the mm -hmm. upcoming school year. He said that that's a good tool for them because by March they're starting to have an idea of where the legislature may go on things, although the session will not have been adjourned by March. Uh, but that allows them to have an election in March and know whether it passes or fails when they come to set their school budget for the upcoming school year, which they often do uh, late during the preceding school year, if that makes sense at all. And so by March, you know if your supplemental levy is passed, and so you have a pretty good idea of what your revenues are going to be. If you have to wait till May, school might already be out. That budget might already be set. You already have to have your teacher uh, negotiations underway. And so that's what Ryan Kirby, uh, retired school superintendent, said about his concern about his opposition to the bill. Right. Meanwhile, supporters said it's all about transparency, increasing turnout, uh, getting people used to the fact that, you know, you can expect in May and November, that's, those are election days that we can keep in mind. And so she's hoping for greater transparency and greater participation. But opponents said this might kind of remove one of the tools that school districts have available to them for their budgeting process. Uh, so stay tuned on that one. It is a House bill. Having passed the House, it heads next to the Senate. Right. And, you know, you alluded to it. That March election date is really the battleground on this bill. Yeah. Uh, the question of whether school districts need that March election to plan their budget. Uh, Ryan Kirby's made that point. The School Boards Association has made that point. Uh, Wendy Horman disputes it. She says that she doesn't think that there's anything that's insurmountable with moving these elections to May she and November. She did say that, yeah. But the facts are the facts on this. And, and wherever you are on this issue, the facts are that the March election date is the most common date that school districts use to run, especially supplemental levies. That is just the facts. And we laid out those facts several weeks ago, and you're going to see it again coming up March 10th, a week from, a week from, you know, from Tuesday is another 
school election date, and by my count, and we'll have a full rundown next week, so look for it uh, at idaho8news.org next week. I want to say that there are about 40 school districts around the state who have uh, levies on the ballot on March 10th. We'll have the full rundown. You'll see if there are any uh, schools in your neighborhood that have elections. It's a, it's become a very important date in, in the calendar for school districts. And, you know, wherever you are in that debate, that's simply the facts of the matter. So, again, here's another bill that we'll be watching to see what happens over on the Senate side. Um, you know, there's already a school election bill or a le an election bill that's been kind of on hold in the Senate for right. uh, more than a month. We'll, we'll be watching both of those bills pretty closely. Yeah. Another, it, it was a, a weird week and kind of a nasty week, but you had an opportunity to take a step back and look at the bigger perspective surrounding what had been one of our main goals for education, the 60% goal, which is a population goal, but it's a, the goal was to have 60% of Idaho's young adult population, I want to say ages 25 to 34, yep. hold some sort of a post-secondary degree or a technical certificate. Um, for years, that was the state's top education goal, and for years, Idaho has been stuck in neutral, stuck at around 42 percent. Yeah, let's. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. But your piece was really interesting, and you took kind of a step back where the goal came from, why we're not hearing about it as much anymore, but uh, kind of break down where the story went and, and, and what you laid out. Well, first of all, the numbers. And the numbers aren't really new because we've seen this for the past several years. Idaho's uh, completion rate is at 42 percent. Uh, it's been there now for at least three years. Um, and mind you, the state has been pursuing the 60% goal since 2010. Yeah. The numbers have really not moved up. These are 2018 numbers that I'm talking about when we talk about the 42%. I want to say that it was about 37% back in 2010 when this started. But it's really flatlined over the last several years. And as I started to research that and look at the story, the thing that also jumped out at me is that if you look at the state board's own literature, and this is a state board goal, this is where it came from back in 2010, the state board is not talking as much about the 60% goal. Um, the state board puts out this kind of glossy annual report on education. This year's edition of, uh, of the state board's fact book contains no reference at all to the 60% goal. I went back and looked at Governor Little's state of the state address, his, his you know, chance to lay out his agenda on education, and all other issues uh, in facing the state, no mention of the 60% goal. Um, he's talked a lot more about college and career readiness. The state board is using a lot of different metrics, and there are a lot of different metrics to try to get at that college and career readiness uh, criteria, whether it's dual credit, whether it's uh, go-on rates, you know, percentage of kids who go straight on to college after high school, numbers of students getting opportunity scholarships. On down the list, a lot more emphasis on some of those metrics yeah. in the state board's own literature. So as I was working on the story, I went to the state board and said, you know, I kind of want to ask not just about the numbers, but maybe about the messaging. And I talked to Debbie Critchfield, among other folks at the state board, and she said, you know, I'm not happy with the numbers. None of us are really happy with these numbers. Uh, we do have to look at a lot of different things, a lot of different metrics, uh, you know. Yeah, and, and that's kind of the, the rise to looking at things like dual credit and the opportunity scholarship um, yeah, and, and the go-on rates. 
you know, Matt Freeman, the executive director of the state board, he was in on the interview. He said, we are not abandoning the 60% goal, but we are looking at different things. And in all fairness, you know, when the state board has talked about this goal, as you said at the very outset, this is a population goal. Yeah. And what we mean by that is it's measuring the percentage of the population that holds a degree or right. holds a professional certificate. It doesn't measure graduation rates. Or go on rates. Or, or go on rates or anything like that. And you think about it, we're, we're talking about 25 to 34-year-olds and where they live and where they go with an education. And one of the things that the state board tracked, this was back a year earlier when they did talk about the 60% goal in, in their annual report. Really interesting stuff. They talked about how Idaho is basically an exporter of young people with degrees and certificates. More people leave the state with a degree or certificate than come in with yeah, a degree or a certificate, especially with Washington State. But the out-migration from Idaho to Washington is, is a pretty lopsided figure. And you think about that, that really has nothing to do with education. That may be a reflection on the job market. You know, maybe there are more jobs and higher paying jobs in Seattle or Portland or the Bay Area, even when you account for higher cost of living. Right. You know, a young person may say, you know, I can, I can do better if I leave. And especially if you're trying to leave, you know, uh, rural Idaho as opposed to the Treasure Valley. You know, it's also a reflection. 25 to 34-year-olds may just decide, I want to live in a big city. I want to check it out. I want to do this at this stage in my life. Or they may follow, you know, a significant other. Any number of things that really have nothing to do with education. Yeah, your point so, is well taken that there are aspects of the goal that are outside of the control of our education institutions, the legislature, the state board of education. Some of those things are just outside of their control. Which is exactly what uh, the board is saying when they're saying, let's look at some things that are within our control. How many kids are getting scholarships? Yeah, that's within the, the state board's control. That's a budget item that they pursue. How many kids are taking dual credit? That's an education metric. Yeah. How many kids are going on from high school to college? That's an education metric. So what I tried to do with this was, you know, tried to take a thoughtful look at it. You know, you know, it's easy, and we've written the story for several years about the numbers being stagnant. And, you know, as Debbie Critchfield said in her interview, um, you know, sometimes that number gets, it's something we get beat over the head about. Yeah. You know, we're not making any progress on the 60% goal. But she maintains the progress is being made. You're just seeing it in different metrics, in different areas. Um, so again, I, I was just really struck. Years and years we've been writing about the 60% goal, and it feels like in the years to come we may be writing less about the 60% goal. That doesn't mean that it isn't on the books and it isn't still on you know, the state's list of metrics. It's just not uh, maybe tops on the list of metrics. Yeah, it's a good piece, and, and really... You've been doing this all session, uh, but for our readers, if you want to watch uh, the homepage on Thursday, each each Thursday you publish kind of a step back piece, taking a look back at the bigger picture, not just what happened this week, not what's the latest and greatest breaking news, but you take a big important topic in education and you really take a deep dive into it. That was this week's installment. It's been a great project um, this this session, and it's going to continue. But uh, every Thursday, or if you sign up for our, our email newsletters every Friday morning in your in, inbox, morning. you can look at it. But that's the idea is we take a big concept or goal or issue in education. Kevin deconstructs it, breaks it down, and really looks at it holistically, where are we at, where have we gone, what's the context, and so right. it's kind of and fun. If, and if you've listened this far into the podcast this week, uh, and if you have ideas, if you have a topic that you think we should dig into and take a, a, a little bit deeper dive into, 
shoot me an email yep. uh, or you know get in touch with me over Twitter. Let me know. I'd be uh, interested in what you think we should take a closer look at. That covers most of the big headlines from this week. A couple things we should probably mention, at least to uh, kind of tie a bow around. Um, you were there Thursday morning. Uh, the university presidents, the college and university presidents, were before the House Education Committee. That means Marlene Trump was before the House Education Committee. Kind of anticlimactic. It sure was, given the backdrop of the diversity letter, uh, well, the letter pushing back against Boise State diversity exactly. programs that was signed by Representative Barbara Ehart, who we talk a lot about on this podcast, and I want to say seven other members yeah, of majority the, of the committee signed House the Education Committee signed the letter. None of it came up. None of it came up on Thursday. They didn't ask President Trump about it. The transgender athletics bill didn't come up. It was kind of a, it was a fairly routine hearing. Um, university yeah. presidents talked about systemness, and which is their idea of working together uh, as opposed to competing against each other. And they talked about the tuition freeze. They talked about how they're responding to the uh, budget reset, the the budget spending reductions. Uh, they're talking about some of the programs that are going on there, but. Uh, Another, no hard questions, nothing, uh, you know, no friction between the members. The diversity letter did not come up at all. Uh, so if you were yeah. looking for anything there, no, it was a pretty routine. No, pretty an, routine another, another great narrative ruined by the facts. But And, and you know, we kind of had that later Thursday. Uh, rules are done. Senate education finished its work on rules. After it, seven it, weeks? Yes, it took, well, almost eight weeks. <laughs> You know, this is the three or four days. week or five week process that we were promised. Uh, no, it took almost eight weeks. Senate Education wrapped up the final piece of the education rules puzzle, uh, some of the teacher certification rules, with the promise now from the state superintendent uh, that uh, the department is going to take a closer look at all of these certification rules over the next 18 months. But Sometimes I didn't know if we'd live to see the day when uh, rules were going to be done at the legislature this year, but they are done. So now we can get back to whatever else we're going to get back to the uh, the, the crush of legislation here in the well, final that's, two weeks. Well, that's why we're in. The, that's why the house. That's why the house is in this prison on a Friday, and it did this to itself because it spent the first six, seven weeks of the session uh, focusing on trying to repeal rules and standards, an effort that went nowhere. Yeah. Uh, and now the house is all backed up with. 30-plus bills sitting on its reading calendar and a deadline to transmit legislation on Monday. Tempers are running short. There's the threat of the weekend session. It's not going well, but, I mean, this is a problem that the legislature created for itself, and it's really difficult to see it as anything other than that. Um, They only have themselves to blame. And and it's this weird kind of dysfunctional point of the legislative session. And it's an arbitrary thing anyways. Well, on the policy end, this legislature seems to be uh, kind of wrapped around the axle and and going slowly. You have the budget process moving along fairly quickly. Yeah. Uh, You know, just uh, overheard on the Senate floor this morning when I was listening for other things, Senate passed the corrections budget, which we don't cover very closely, but it's a big budget, and there are a lot of big initiatives in there that the governor has been pushing for. Passed it unanimously. They, 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 you know, they just kind of rolled right through that. And we do expect the budget committee to get together on Tuesday and set the K-12 budgets. That's a big day in the legislative session. That's something we'll be, uh, we'll be there to watch closely. Ties in a lot of things that we've been talking about, including the teacher salary bill that's on the House floor, including the literacy issue that we've talked about, social-emotional learning. All of those line items will, will factor into what comes out of uh, JFAC on the K-12 budget. But, you know, JFAC is kind of purring along, passing 
most of the big budgets. You know, they've already done higher ed. They've already done corrections. They've they will do public schools on Tuesday. I'm not sure exactly when Medicaid will come up. Last I heard, there's no real date set. But you know, that's a big piece of the equation in terms of the legislature wrapping up for the year are these budget bills, and those are kind of percolating. JFAC's moving along. The Senate is moving along, and the House is just knee-deep in it, probably even deeper than that. The, but, the, the Senate left uh, at, at lunchtime on Friday, yeah, and the House the is going all is, afternoon. There is, this is totally arbitrary. I know they have their transmittal deadline, and they want to adjourn the session in March. There is no reason that the Idaho House needs to be staying late at night on a Friday in February or working on a Saturday. This is a completely a situation of their own doing. Uh, we'll be there. We don't know how long we'll be there or even it's their why fault. We'll, or why we'll be there. But we will be there uh, tracking this closely. Speaking of where else we'll be, you're going to leave right now and you're going to go record a segment for Idaho Reports We're on Idaho Public the Television. We're going to as best we can figure out what's going on this week because the week isn't done yet, but we'll... Uh, we will do that. We will have that. Uh, that'll air on public TV at 8 o'clock on Friday night, rebroadcast Sunday morning, and I'll have the, uh, the full video on my blog sometime over the weekend. It looks like a nice weekend. I may be stuck inside of the State House. We'll see, I guess, huh? It looks uh, nice out <laughs> As always, uh, thanks so much for joining us on the Extra Credit Podcast. We have a lot of fun breaking down this complicated intersection education policy and education politics. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Have a good week. 